Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today's show is No Simple Answers, the complexity of COVID-19. Our music for the program features Canadian pianist and composer Chris Davis. We're listening to The Slightest Shift, off of the 2005 album of the same name. Our conversation today highlights the way we think about medical, social, and policy responses to the COVID-19 pandemic. An event like this reveals a complex system of interactions at the intersection of economics, social systems, and the disease itself. Here's today's guest, Samuel Scarpino, in conversation with episode producer Brady Heberlin. I think also if you zoom out and you look at the full distribution, so all of the cities in the world that have experienced COVID outbreaks, we would, of course, expect that some of them would be more severe than others just by chance. And as a result of the complexity of the underlying processes that drive transmission, the variability in how and when and to what effect measures were put in place, the differences in underlying demographics and underlying comorbidities, the effect of chance, stochasticity, makes it very, very difficult to try and understand what is really different about a New York City as, as compared to a San Francisco, or what is different about uh, Northern Italy as compared to parts of Southern China. Samuel Scarpino is an assistant professor in the Network Science Institute at Northeastern University in Boston. Scarpino's research spans a broad range of topics in complex systems and network science, including infectious disease dynamics, forecasting and predictive modeling, complex network analysis, outbreak surveillance, social networks, and decision-making under uncertainty. He also directs the Emergent Epidemics Lab, which investigates questions using mathematical and computational methods from biology, statistics, physics, applied mathematics, and computer science. The goal today is to try to attain some lucidity in the face of innumerable speculations about the novel coronavirus, COVID-19, by defining many of the terms that are being used to discuss it. These are complex issues, and there needs to be a more basic understanding of primary concerns. To do that, we'll focus on things like the r not value, or the basic reproduction number, contact tracing, super spreaders, herd immunity, the length of time we might expect the pandemic to continue, and the likelihood of a resurgence, not once, but twice. And we'll also take a look at the technological solutions on offer that might be utilized to enable a return to a closer-to-normal version of economic activity. These digital surveillance applications, though, raise real privacy concerns for many. However, and this may be a surprise to you, you are not legally well protected when it comes to privacy in the first place. Finally, what is stressed is the way that all of these considerations must take place within a global and networked world order. A pandemic doesn't just affect those who are ill. For example, the consequences reach into food systems and supply chains, far more fragile than we might suspect. And now, no simple answers. The complexity of COVID-19 with Sam Scarpino on Interchange, on WFHB. To 
begin, I just wanted to ask you to introduce COVID from your perspective as someone who's studying infectious disease dynamics. Uh, what makes this virus unique from, say, SARS or avian flu, um, these diseases that we've seen in the last decade, or from Ebola, for example? One of the most challenging aspects of studying this disease is that it is a novel pathogen, one that we knew almost nothing about until it caused a bunch of pneumonia cases in Wuhan, China back in December. And then we obviously discovered what virus was causing those pneumonia cases and, and have spent a huge amount of time and energy over the past few months learning everything we could about its biology, natural history, epidemiology. One of the big differences between COVID-19 and SARS, avian influenza, MERS, some of the other pathogens that we've dealt with over the past 10 years or so, maybe is the most obvious one, which is that it's causing a pandemic. And that's not something that happened with SARS. It's not something that happened with MERS or avian influenza. And of course, trying to understand what about this disease, what about this pathogen has facilitated it spreading out from its origin in Wuhan to become the pandemic that it is, is one of the major areas of, of research, both in, in our group, but, but also internationally. So at Northeastern University, you're working in the Emergent Epidemics Laboratory, is that right? That's right, yeah. So when you all are looking at things like COVID or looking at other infectious diseases, what attributes of the disease are you looking at to understand why it transfers and why it spreads as a pandemic? One of the things that we look at most closely is how many cases of COVID are caused from a single person who's infected. And this, of course, is the famous or infamous number that you've probably heard in the movies and in the news that is referred to as the R0 or the, the basic reproductive number. This is the average number of secondary infections. Uh, there's a slightly more specific definition, but we won't necessarily need to to focus on that because actually where I want to take us is in a slightly different direction, which is while that number is important, the average number of secondary infections, there's a second number that we think is more important for determining whether a pathogen is likely to cause a pandemic or not. And that's how variable the number of secondary infections. So influenza, on average, around two people will be infected for every one person that gets infected, which is why influenza can grow exponentially fast and, and cause pandemics. The same is true for Ebola, that around two people on average are infected for every single person that has Ebola. Now, we know from past experience that Ebola doesn't cause pandemic. There are a bunch of differences between Ebola and influenza, but one of the really critical differences is that the reason Ebola has an average number of secondary infections of two is because most people give it to no one else. So you have someone that gets infected, and they don't infect anybody else. You have another person that gets infected and they don't infect anybody else. But every once in a while, someone who's infected will give it to 10, 15, 20 other people. These are what we refer to as super spreader events. Contrasting that with influenza, most everybody will give it to one, two, or three other people. And so the variability in the number of transmission events is much, much lower. And this reduced variability makes it harder to control because you can't focus on super spreader events like you can for Ebola. And the effect of random chance is much less in influenza than it is for, for Ebola. So just by chance, an Ebola epidemic might fizzle out before it grows large. Whereas for influenza, it's really unlikely that that's going to happen because it's it's very regular. You have two infections, two infections, two infections, two infections, two infections. For every new infectious disease that we encounter, we, of course, hear about this basic reproductive number, the average number, very, very early on. It's one of the first quantities that people try and estimate. And for COVID-19, that's somewhere between two and three. But it turns out, as I was just alluding to with Ebola and influenza, 
that it's more important whether an individual is giving it to two people, two people, two people, two people through that transmission chain, or whether you have a lot of these super spreader events. And for COVID, we found out that it's somewhere in the middle. It's not quite as reliant on super spreader events as say SARS or MERS or Ebola, but it is not quite as regular as influenza. It's somewhere in the middle of of those two kinds of of pathogens. And how does that play into things like the precautions that people are being asked to take? So right now, many states are on shutdowns where nobody but essential workers are allowed to move. We're being asked to social distance, to wear masks, to wear gloves. Um, Do these quantities that people that you know, researchers like yourself look at when you're studying influenza, SARS, Ebola, uh, COVID, you know, how do they determine what kind of precautions we should take given that there are people who are super spreaders, given that people might only be passing it on to one person at a time? Do you see something that's unique about the precautions we're taking for COVID rather than uh, what, you know, people have taken in the past for a bad case of the flu? There's two answers to that. The first is related to the quantities I was just discussing, which is the average number of secondary infections and then the variability in that number or how reliant the pathogen is on super spreading events. So for a disease like COVID that is more similar to influenza, controlling the disease with contact tracing, where you identify individuals who are sick, notify individuals who they are in contact with so those individuals can self-isolate and focus on preventing super spreading. For diseases like COVID, for diseases like influenza, once they've grown above a small outbreak, a handful of cases, it becomes very, very difficult to control them with contact tracing. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is Sam Scarpino, director of the Emergent Epidemics Lab at Northeastern University in Boston. We're talking about how we flatten the curve of the COVID-19 pandemic and why it's necessary in the absence of pharmaceutical interventions. Our only resource until we have a treatment or a vaccine is to impose other non-pharmaceutical interventions that reduce the contact between individuals. These are the kinds of shelter-in-place, moving of bars and restaurants to take out or delivery, closing of non-essential businesses. Those become our only effective tools at controlling the spread and reducing the demand on on our healthcare system. Uh, To your other question around masks and gloves, the other piece about COVID-19 that we've really only been certain of in the past month or so is that individuals who are either asymptomatic, meaning that they don't have any outward facing symptoms, they probably don't even know that they're sick or pre-symptomatic, meaning that they may have very mild symptoms and they will eventually progress to having a fever, a cough, maybe requiring ICU care, but at the time they don't seem to be sick. Those individuals can transmit COVID-19 to other people which means that wearing a mask, wearing gloves can help reduce the chance that if you're sick and don't know it, that you would transmit uh, to someone else. And so as a result of both the much lower variability in the number of secondary infections and much less reliance on super spreading events, that means that once the cases grow large, as they have in the United States and Europe and other parts of the world, we have to impose measures to flatten the curve and reduce our contacts in post-physical distancing. And because we've learned that individuals are infectious and don't have symptoms, it places a lot of importance on masks and hygiene to reduce the likelihood of transmission from individuals who, who are not showing symptoms onto, onto other people. So in countries like 
Taiwan and South Korea, there have been these really effective contact tracing um, methods that both the government and researchers have used to try to track the disease over time, to try to understand who's likely to have it, even if they're asymptomatic. Can you say a little bit about that process and what does it look like to do contact tracing, either from a network science perspective or to implement that in policy or in just in practice. What's very important about both Taiwan, South Korea, Singapore, other places that have successfully controlled the outbreak with contact tracing is that they implemented it very early, really before they had more than a handful of cases. And they're testing high fractions of the population. So the U.S. has massively increased our test capacity over the past month, but we still don't have the same per capita testing that they do in South Korea. So the two pieces that we saw were really important are testing high numbers of individuals, high per capita with respect to the population size, and implementing it before the number of cases grows too large. Once the number of cases grows too large, you have to implement physical distancing measures, mobility restrictions to bring the case numbers down, flatten the curve, and then you can implement this test isolate strategy uh, that has been so effective in South Korea and Singapore. That being said, those countries also rely very heavily on mobile applications and technology to scale the ability for individuals to do contact tracing. And I think that's one of the things that we're going to have to rely on in the United States and Europe and the rest of the world is digital technology for contact tracing. And this, of course, raises a lot of very important and complicated privacy issues. And those are the conversations that we need to be having right now so that we're ready in the next month or two to implement these kinds of measures uh, to try and allow for the relaxation of some of the non-pharmaceutical interventions that are currently in place. Companies like Apple and Google have recently released that they will be trying to implement some of this into phones, for example, and and allow users to opt in to a sort of tracking mechanism for COVID-19. But how does that work in South Korea and Taiwan? What data is being collected? How is that being used to understand the spread of, of this disease? Well, South Korea has data sharing agreements between the telecommunications providers and the government that allows the telecommunications providers to share lots of very personal information with the government. And that's a kind of social contract that the South Korean population has entered into between society and government and the private telecommunications providers that they believe is uh, of sufficient public health benefit to warrant the privacy reductions that come with those kinds of data sharing. The expectation is that in other countries, there may not be a willingness to agree to those kinds of privacy reductions, even though we may already be surveilled at those levels without actually knowing it. I think informing people of that may mean that they are not going to opt in. And one of the problems is that opt in is really not going to be a sufficient strategy. We need large percentages of the population to participate if this is going to be effective. One way to think about this is that contact tracing and case isolation is kind of like vaccination, where you have to have a really high percentage of the population, probably in this case, 70 or 80 percent or higher participating if it's going to be effective. And so what we really need are the kinds of privacy preserving contact tracing applications that will give people the confidence that they can participate in these critical functions without sacrificing too much of their own personal privacy. It's time for a break and another piece from Chris Davis, this time off of the 2019 release Diatom Ribbons. This is Stone's Throw, perhaps a good measure of social distance. Stay with us on Interchange for more on the network effects of a pandemic.
back to Interchange on WFHB. Episode producer Brady Heberlin is in conversation with Sam Scarpino, director of the Emergent Epidemics Lab at Northeastern University, about the complexities involved in understanding how a virus spreads illness as well as disruption in social networks. This segment focuses on the use of digital surveillance apps and how these might prove necessary if governments move to restart non-essential economic activity. What are the major questions people are wrangling right now with in terms of the the tracking and privacy? Do you have a sense of the way those conversations are happening right now in sort of the academic sphere, in the sphere of research? It's a really big challenge. Obviously in the U.S., or maybe it's not obvious, but we don't really have a lot in the way of legal privacy protection. We have some aspects of our lives that are protected by privacy that we think are really important that involve things like search and seizure, um, reproductive health. Some of those aspects are protected by privacy. But especially on the digital side, we don't have the kinds of protection even that they have in Europe, which, you know, with their GDPR regulations and, and others. On top of that, in order to provide a solution rapidly at scale, it's hard to imagine it being done without the big technology companies, just because the feasibility of the operation requires that kind of, of scale and expertise. And of course, most of the big tech companies do not have great track records when it comes to being good stewards of our of our private information. And so we're, we are sort of in a, in a very tricky situation where we don't really have a lot of privacy protection, at least legally. We know that the tech companies have not been great stewards of our privacy in the past, but we are probably heavily reliant on them to roll out these applications if we're going to successfully implement the test, isolate, trace strategy to relax some of the non-pharmaceutical interventions that are currently in place. Now, I think our hope on the academic side is that we can provide tools to the tech companies that allow them to implement these contact tracing applications in a privacy-preserving way and convince them that doing so will facilitate a higher degree of buy-in such that the resulting effect can control the COVID-19 outbreak. But of course, these are very much ongoing conversations uh, and, and negotiations between lots of parties with varying uh, motivations. And, and so it's really too soon to tell what kinds of solutions we're actually going to see implemented at scale. And when people are talking about flattening the curve, you know, a big part of this conversation is not necessarily ending the outbreak because we don't have the sort of capacity to just stop COVID in its tracks, but it's about slowing it down enough that hospitals can take care of people, that there's not some you know, really nasty moral decision that has to be made about who gets a hospital bed and who doesn't. Um, but it makes me wonder about the timeline for these tracking mechanisms, you know, having having the ability to, to flatten the curve, to slow down the spread. Is it, you know, are we, are we running late on the timeline to uh, really control the outbreak? Is there a point at which we're not able to reduce the number of cases anymore? Um, I'm just thinking of that sort of like semi-exponential growth, you know, growth curve that we we see when something really spreads through a network and wondering what what are the what are the limits on the on the timeline for the spread that that you're seeing? Well, I think certainly in the United States and and large parts of Europe, we are already past the point at which the contact tracing can work. And so the strategy now is to flatten the curve and try and prevent the kinds of situations you're describing where you have hospitals that are overwhelmed and we have to make uh, even more difficult decisions around who gets to have a ventilator and who doesn't. But that we will need these mechanisms in the next month, two months, three months. Once the case numbers come down, we will still not have had a, a high enough 
percentage of the population infected that we will reach herd immunity. It's likely to be the case that somewhere between 5 and 20% of the population will have been infected, which is far less than what's needed for herd immunity. And so we'll need to have these contact tracing testing capacities, isolation capacities in place so that we can relax some of the physical distancing measures that are in currently currently in use and keep the risk of resurgence down to a minimum. Now, there are, of course, other parts of the world, and a lot of these are in low and middle income countries where we think they haven't really started to experience the outbreak yet, which means that deploying some of these technology solutions could actually prevent the first waves from happening. And so for all of these reasons, both because the immediate need is coming quickly in the United States and in Europe, and there's still an incredible need throughout most of the rest of the world, we need to to act quickly uh, and thoughtfully to start to deliver these kinds of technologies both nationally in the U.S., in Europe, and, and more globally. Can you say a little bit more about what herd immunity is and how it's how it's functioning so far in COVID and also immunity in general to COVID? Yes. The evidence that we have, and that primarily comes from two or two and a half sources, is that we will have protective immunity for, from COVID after infection. Now, it may be that this protective immunity only lasts for six months, a year, or two years, which is what's typical of coronaviruses in humans. But people will be protected uh, after they have successfully made it through COVID infection. Now, so what, what's the evidence for this? Well, one is there's been trials in animal populations and non-human primates, in particular rhesus macaques, where they infect the individuals with COVID-19, they recover, they can measure the antibody levels, and then they re-expose those individuals to COVID-19 and can show that they are protected against reinfection, meaning that they have successfully mounted a sterilizing immune response such that they will not develop disease again. Uh, should they be re-exposed. The second is that although the trials have been limited, there is evidence that if you take blood serum from an individual, from a human who has made it through COVID, and you provide that blood serum to individuals that are currently fighting off COVID, those individuals will be less likely to progress to severe disease and may recover more quickly, which is indicative of protective antibodies in the serum of those individuals who have already recovered uh, from COVID. The third is that all of the epidemiologic evidence to date is consistent with a disease where people are immune, at least for a period of time, after they have been infected. And so I think for those three or two and a half, uh, because I think the epidemiologic evidence is less strong than the first two reasons, we should anticipate that there will be immunity to COVID afterwards. You're listening to No Simple Answers, The Complexity of COVID-19 on Interchange. Guest Sam Scarpino of Northeastern University's Network Science Institute details what herd immunity is and why we're not likely to come anywhere close to that anytime soon. So then what do we mean by herd immunity? Well, what we mean is that not everyone in the population has to get infected before sufficiently many people are immune such that the chance of an outbreak taking off and growing into an epidemic is very, very small. This is what we try to achieve with vaccination for diseases where a vaccine exists. You go in, you vaccinate a high enough fraction of the population, and then even those people that aren't vaccinated are protected because of this so-called herd effect where you are surrounded by individuals in your social network who are immune either through infection or vaccination, meaning that you are very, very unlikely to end up getting 
the disease. Now, for something like COVID, depending on what we assume about the social network and, and the uncertainty and the number of secondary infections and the variability in the number of secondary infections, that percentage is probably in the 60 to 80 percent range of the population, meaning that 60 to 80 percent of the population has to be immune before we achieve this herd immunity, before we have sufficiently many people immune that the chance that an outbreak would grow uh, into an epidemic is, is low. Our models and the, the data now coming from places that have already gone through outbreaks suggest that these first waves will infect between 5 and 20 or 25 percent of the population, which means that the populations will still be below the herd immunity threshold and at high risk for a second wave or resurgence of, of COVID-19 as soon as the non-pharmaceutical interventions, the physical distancing measures are relaxed. I think that brings us to a sort of hot ticket question. I think a lot of people are, are asking themselves right now while we're on stay-at-home orders, which is about the amount of time that we can expect COVID-19 to last and whether we can expect to have these sort of disruptions extend into the fall or extend into next year. Do you have a sense from your research and the things that you're reading right now about uh, what that process might look like or how we might expect things to play out over the summer over the fall and into the winter and new year? I think what's really important to remember is that flattening the curve does mean that we're going to have these measures in place longer. As I mentioned before, we're also not going to have a sufficiently high percentage of the population infected to generate herd immunity. However, if we had followed the not flatten the curve strategy, we would still end up with about the same percentage of the population infected. So still not enough to generate herd immunity. And that's because the natural effects of social networks, differences in the number of contacts, household structure, all of those things would contribute to the disease slowing down before it reaches that full herd immunity threshold. So we're not really comparing a situation where we either flatten the curve and don't get herd immunity to don't flatten the curve and get herd immunity. We're comparing a situation of flatten the curve, reduce the chance that we have intensive care units overwhelmed, reduce the chance that we're going to be making life and death decisions about who does and does not get a ventilator. And the other situation being we still don't get herd immunity, but we have ICUs overwhelmed, really high rates of death, physicians and healthcare workers making impossible moral decisions about who gets a ventilator and who doesn't. It's also the case that we would still have a huge economic effect if we didn't flatten the curve because you would have these high rates of mortality, high rates of morbidity, hospitals being overwhelmed. All of those things are also going to have serious economic consequences that would probably be larger than the economic consequences we're facing as a result of these flatten the curve measures. So I think it is really important to remember that the situation that we're in is one where either we flatten the curve and increase the chance that we don't have ICUs overwhelmed, or we don't flatten the curve and we know the ICUs are going to get overwhelmed, but we still don't really get the benefit of those additional infections because of this natural uh, process where the disease will stop from the first wave, even without these non-pharmaceutical interventions. The other piece of this is that looking at things like restaurant reservations through open table or mobility data that Google has released, people were already physical distancing and taking measures before the government's mandate. The other reason that the quote unquote, just let it go strategy or herd immunity strategy won't work is that people are going to get scared and they're going to stay home anyway, which means that we're going to be in some kind of complicated middle ground where we haven't flattened the curve enough to prevent the ICUs from getting overwhelmed. We're still getting economic consequences because people aren't going to bars and restaurants. And we're in almost a worst case scenario. So it's much better to implement the measures, see them through until we get the case numbers down, 
than it is to either have half measures uh, or no measures at all. Now, all that being said, it's probably the case that we're in for at least another month or more in most places of these kinds of measures. Looking at the curves in China, South Korea, Italy, Germany, you have very broad outbreaks, long tails in the number of mortality events, meaning that it is weeks and weeks and weeks after the peak number of cases before the infection rate drops down to a place where you can start to relax some of these measures and implement implement the test contact isolate strategy. It's time for another break. This is Twice Escaped, another cut off Chris Davis's 2005 album, The Slightest Shift. Stay with us for more on the complexity of COVID-19 with guest Sam Scarpino when Interchange returns on WFHB. back to Interchange on WFHB. In this segment of No Simple Answers, producer Brady Heberlin asks our guest Sam Scarpino, director of the Emergent Epidemics Lab, about the likelihood that the pandemic has a resurgence or second wave of infections and how that kind of event can be predicted. What are the chances that we see a resurgence of this in the fall? Is it possible that we will see COVID sort of die down over the summer? We might see, you know, the economy open up in some regard and then be hit with it again in the fall, either because of mutation or because of the way that climate impacts disease spread or because the economy itself opened. What do you think you know, at play in that possibility, if, if anything? I think that the chance of resurgence is very high and not because of mutation. I think everything we've seen so far, and there's been an incredible amount of genomic surveillance of this pathogen, everything we've seen so far is that the disease is picking up mutations at random and not evolving to be resistant to current antibodies or increased transmissibility or increased virulence. And people are paying very, very close attention to that. What's likely to happen is that because only and only is is obviously an understatement because 15, 20% of the population is a huge number of people getting infected 
We've seen really, really high rates of mortality. But because only 15 to 20% of the population, meaning much less than the herd immunity threshold, gets infected in the first wave of the outbreak, we are going to be susceptible to a second wave and possibly a third wave. And so as soon as we start to relax any of these measures, we are putting our populations at high risk for a resurgence. And the best thing we can do to either prevent or lower the chance that we have these resurgence events is implementing really high rates of testing, contact tracing, and then isolating those individuals who are either sick or exposed. And one thing that you you started to mention earlier, or you sort of referenced in passing, was the, you know, the places that aren't impacted by COVID yet, the places that don't have their first wave. Uh, and it kind of brings me to the question about how different places are being affected really like substantially differently. Um, we saw, we're seeing, you know, many cases in New York City. We saw Italy just take off um, and really become, you know, the so-called epicenter of COVID in Europe. Um, and I've seen arguments that it's not even about density per se, um, but I'm, I'm not sure, you know, I'm, I'm kind of curious what, what uh, facilitates COVID taking off more quickly in some places or, you know, more violently in some places than others. The whole world is obviously very interested in understanding the answer to that question, which is why does COVID seem to be more severe in some places or, or spread more quickly in some places than, than others? Now, we know that places with more dense social connections, places that don't implement physical distancing measures should be more likely to have rapid transmission. We know that places where you have older populations, more underlying health risks or so-called comorbidities should be more likely to have higher case fatality. However, because this is a pathogen that will spread exponentially fast, just a slight delay in implementing these measures can sometimes lead to huge differences in the outcome. And so one explanation for New York is they were just a little bit too late. And I think that's really hard for us to conceptualize, in part because it's hard for us to conceptualize these kind of exponentially growing outbreaks anyways, but that there may not really be anything different about New York aside from the fact that they just got a little bit unlucky and they were a little bit slower. And and that can really just be a few days. In Italy, it may be the same situation. They obviously had early cases there. Now, they do have a slightly older population, but, you know, so does Japan, so do other parts of the world, and they haven't seen the same kinds of case fatality rate. I think also if you zoom out and you look at the full distribution, so all of the cities in the world that have experienced COVID outbreaks, we would, of course, expect that some of them would be more severe than others just by chance. And as a result of the complexity of the underlying processes that drive transmission, the variability in how and when and to what effect measures were put in place, the differences in underlying demographics and underlying comorbidities, the effect of chance, stochasticity, makes it very, very difficult to try and understand what is really different about a New York City as, as compared to a San Francisco or what is different about uh, Northern Italy as compared to, you know, parts of Southern China. Of course, we really can see that physical distancing, mobility restrictions, these non-pharmaceutical interventions do work, and they have worked in a lot of different contexts. And we can see that in places like Wuhan and in northern Italy, where hospitals get overwhelmed, that the fatality rates spike, the infection rates spike. So while we can't yet really understand where all of the differences are sorting out, that's, of course, an area of really active research, we really can conclude that the measures that are currently in place work, they have worked, they will work here, that contact tracing and isolation can work, has worked in other places, and as long as we implement it at scale, can work in the United States and Europe, and that preventing hospitals from getting overwhelmed 
is of, of top importance. And so we, we keep kind of touching on the economy as, as this underlying problem. It's almost like the more that we do to stimmy COVID, the more harm that's being done to the economy. And I guess I'm wondering, you know, what do those tensions look like from a sort of epidemiological angle where, you know, it seems like our first priority should be really stopping COVID and dealing with the economic consequences sort of as they come or through, you know, building building a kind of support network that we haven't seen before for people. But I'm I'm curious like when that tension comes to a head, like what does that what does that look like when what we have to do for the for preventing COVID cases and flattening the curve is in direct contrast to what, you know, what the economy sort of demands. And I'm I'm saying that, you know, hearing the president say that he wants to reopen the economy and, you know, our, our own representatives in Indiana have explicitly said that there's a necessary loss of, of life that accompanies reopening the economy. And these things are absurd to hear. Those are the options, you know, stopping COVID or opening the economy. Back under President Nixon, the United States was this close to universal basic income, meaning that every individual in the United States would be guaranteed a monthly income that would keep them above the poverty line. Imagine if we had that in place right now. One of the reasons that we are experiencing these economic consequences is because we have not planned for these kinds of events, even though these economic shocks, whether it's because of COVID or how Wall Street is behaving or issues with housing and student loans, these sorts of shocks to the economy happen regularly. We've been predicting that a pandemic like this was coming for decades. And we know that one of the first things to take a hit is the economy. And that's large part because individuals don't have safety nets in the United States. They don't have access to consistent resources to provide for their families should they even have a short interruption in work. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is Sam Scarpino of Boston's Northeastern University, and we're discussing the ways that governments can give economic support to individuals that will mitigate the likely resurgence of COVID-19 when social distancing measures are relaxed and non-essential businesses are allowed to reopen. I do think that there is more of a middle ground here where the federal government, the state governments can provide resources directly to individuals that will both allow people to buy food, pay their rent, pay their bills, and also will contribute to the economy because those dollars will be going directly into the grocery stores, the farms, the other businesses that are supporting all of our day-to-day needs. There's overwhelming evidence from studies that these kinds of universal basic income measures work. They don't lead to laziness. They don't lead to increased rates of, you know, bad behavior, whatever that means. In fact, it's, it's the opposite. And so I think that this dichotomy between the economy and the pandemic has been manufactured by the societal and economic decisions that we've made in this country. Now, of course, now we're in this, in this position and these economic consequences are really killing people. We know that when the economy turns, when unemployment goes up, that mortality rates increase. So we do need to be balancing the measures that are in place now with their economic effects. I refuse to believe that killing a sizable percentage and two to three percent of is sizable of the population isn't going to lead to even larger economic consequences. So I think I think, again, it is not like if we just reopen, everything is going to be fine. It's not a ripping off of the Band-Aid. It's more like we're just going to kill a lot of people. We still will not reach herd immunity. 
And as a result, we're still going to be dealing with waves and waves and waves of this outbreak. So personally, I think that we should be leveraging federal resources to provide to individuals at much higher rates than the checks that are going out now. We should be ensuring that the balance of those are not going to just pay back banks for debt that they hold on individuals. And as a result of that, it will both provide for individuals health and safety because they'll be able to buy food, they'll be able to pay rent, they'll be able to pay utility bills, but it will also inject resources right back. Now, of course, I should preface this by saying that I'm not an economist. These are just my understanding as somebody who is trying to figure out how we balance the economic effects and the epidemiologic effects, knowing that if we back off on these measures now, we're just going to see a resurgence in cases. We're going to see hospitals overwhelmed. We're going to see huge amounts of, of morbidity and mortality. I think that's a really helpful framing. And I think the idea of, of a sort of support mechanisms being what alleviates that kind of contradiction between the pandemic and the economy is is really helpful. And I, I know a lot of those support mechanisms are coming actually not from the federal government, but a lot of mutual aid groups are stepping up. There's a national rent strike in process. There's been talk of, you know, more broad like work stoppages, even if the economy reopens, because people actually want to maintain social distancing and actually want to not go put themselves on the on the front lines as, you know, somebody who works at a grocery store, somebody who works at a fast food restaurant, putting themselves sort of back on the line in order to reopen the economy during a pandemic. I agree completely with, with your assessment. I, I think there's overwhelming evidence that people are not just going to walk out into public and let each other die. Right. That's not something that individuals have have demonstrated an interest in. And so, again, I think we would end up with these half measures, which would be even worse. I guess the other thing I'm, I'm really curious about is as somebody you know who studies complex systems, I'm curious what tools from complex systems and what elements of complexity really play into your understanding of COVID. So what what kinds of things about ideas of emergence or um, this idea that a system is more than the sum of its parts? What's really at play in COVID that you see sort of reflected through the lens of complex systems? From the complex system side, the, the first piece I would say is that uh, the Santa Fe Institute has been convening. They've, they've gone through two uh, remote working groups now, bringing together individuals from economics, epidemiology, sociology, the various fields that are relevant, which is a very broad set of fields, to thinking about how we balance all of the different competing priorities, competing issues around an event like COVID-19. So, of course, one of the really powerful aspects of complex systems, especially centers or institutes like Santa Fe, is just convening, bringing lots of diverse minds with different perspectives under the same roof or onto the same Zoom call to have these kinds of conversations. So I think one of the real powers of complex systems is just bringing everybody together. Now, of course, looking at this outbreak through the lens of complex systems, we understand that you're going to have these kinds of effects from COVID-19 that are very, very difficult to predict. These unintended consequences or these kind of emergent properties where even if we understand quite a bit and we often don't about how all these processes work, once you start mixing them all together, the result can be something that's very, very difficult to predict. We also know that reductionism is somewhere between hard and provably impossible, meaning just looking at the outbreak curves, we can't really disentangle all of the different reasons in which we ended up in the position that we ended up in now. Those different kinds of perspectives are really valuable for framing the conversation with policymakers so that they can understand the inherent difficulties in predicting the behavior of complex systems, in inferring the causal mechanisms underlying complex systems, and in the need for convening 
diverse groups of experts and also stakeholders. So meaning non-experts, but individuals that have, and in this case, it's all of us, a vested interest in the decisions that are being made to have conversations around how do we balance privacy with contact tracing? How do we balance the economic needs with the epidemiologic needs? How do we best deal with the incredible mental health and trauma effects that all of us are going through right now? All of these different things, all of these hard conversations, it's something that Complex Systems has been working on facilitating, you know, since its founding in, in the 1980s. And so I think both of those, those aspects are really critical from both from a Santa Fe Institute perspective, but also from you know, kind of a more general complex systems integrative approach to uh, to studying socio-technical systems, socio-biological systems like pandemics. Yeah, I think that's a really good representation of what the sort of strengths of complex systems are. I remember even when I was at the Santa Fe Institute, it would be common to have a conversation with a physicist, a social scientist, theorist, and economist all in the same room. And that seems like you know, very much what we what we need uh, with COVID right now and people in the community who are doing mutual aid projects, who are sort of self-organizing. It's time for our final break. Chris Davis plays Evidence, a Thelonious Monk composition, off her album, Massive Threads. Stay with us for more Interchange on WFHB. Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. In our final segment, Sam Scarpino, director of the Emergent Epidemics Lab at Northeastern University, stresses that network analysis of factors like our patterns of social mobility, our fearful self-quarantine, and the way the virus spreads in clusters shows that the virus will come to a halt long before herd immunity would be obtained. thing that you that you sort of work with often is is network analysis so that's obviously something that's probably very helpful right now thinking about infectious diseases can you say a little bit about what it looks like to 
represent the information that you're getting about COVID or about other infectious diseases as a network? And what sort of things are you watching for in a network of disease spread? You mentioned this number about the variability and how many people get infected. Is there anything else in terms of clustering or dynamics of spread that you're looking at? Yeah, there's actually quite a number of things that are relevant for COVID-19. In particular, I think most infectious diseases more generally. So the first for COVID-19 is that obviously we're imposing these kind of unprecedented measures. We see the cordoning off of 14 million people in Wuhan. We have shelter-in-place orders all over the United States. Understanding how our geographic connectivity, our social network structures have changed as a result of these measures is both an incredibly important question to answer from an epidemiological perspective, but also from a societal perspective to learn what kinds of new stressors we're going to encounter when we impose these sorts of measures, how massive disruptions to our local, regional, and global connected populations affects economies, affects mental health, affects education, all of the the knock-on effects that we know that we're dealing with 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 COVID-19. So the first, I think, is just understanding how our networks have changed. Even just visualizing them is, is incredibly valuable. We also know that different kinds of social network structures affect disease transmission. One of the really important structures is is what you referred to, clustering, meaning you and I have a friend, we have a second friend. What is the probability that the two of them are themselves friends? So, you know, what is the chance that the friends that I have are themselves friends? These look like triangles in the social network. These kinds of triangles or this sort of clustering, it can alter the speed at which a disease is moving through the population. More clustering, more triangles, more friends of friends being friends slows down disease transmission. As you imagine that you and I are both infected, of course, we're talking via Zoom halfway across the country. We're not going to infect anybody else, but imagine we're in the same room. You and I are both infected. There's a third person. Well, only one of us is going to infect that, which means that the number of secondary infections is is going to go down in those parts of the network that have clustering. It's going to slow down the rate of transmission. Now, why, why is this important for disease like COVID? Well, everything that we've learned suggests that a large percentage of the transmission events happen in households. Households tend to be highly clustered, even if it's not a family household, if it's you know with roommates that are friends you tend to be in densely connected social networks with each other. And what that means is that you can actually end up with these kind of broader, slower epidemics just as a result of the social network effect. And so as I was alluding to or mentioning earlier in our conversation, just these natural social network differences, clustering, variability of number of social connections, the way we move around in our neighborhoods and in our cities, that's going to cause the outbreak to come to a stop before we reach the quote-unquote herd immunity threshold, meaning that even without these measures in place, we're still not going to achieve the herd immunity threshold, which is part of the many reasons that those strategies are both going to cause huge economic effects, huge loss of life, and also not actually work. As a result, if we're going to generate actionable predictions, whether that's the risk of emergence or the number of cases or when the surges are going to come, we need to include these social network effects. We need to include the changing mobility patterns, the changing social contact patterns in our models, in our computer simulations, in order to generate uh, accurate forecast. And so both from the perspective of understanding what's happening, visualizing what's happening, modeling the future, and also communicating the costs and benefits of different proposed intervention strategies requires a detailed understanding of networks, both social networks, regional connectivity networks, trade networks, all the different ways in which we're interconnected with each other. It seems like another one of the networks at play here, um, which you sort of mentioned with trade networks, are supply chain networks. Do you, do you know of any conversations around how those might be affected by COVID? 
Well, it certainly doesn't help that one of the first places that was hit hard by COVID is China, which is where a lot of our supply chains originate all over the world. So I think one of the big blind spots in our pandemic preparedness is we didn't seem to account for the fact that China would probably experience the severe outbreak first. Now, that's a little bit difficult for me to understand because we spend a lot of time fixated on China as a source for these infectious diseases. And and so I don't understand the disconnect between not planning to have our supply chains go down because of the reliance on China, but also assuming that it's going to come out of China. So that disconnect I don't really I don't really understand. I think there's just a lot of peculiarities in in our in our supply chains, right? We have long complex chains that take food and goods from farmers and producers to our tables and to our households. Like there's a flour shortage all over Boston, but I can still go online and order flour from a grain mill in Western Massachusetts. And it costs about the same amount of money I've got to pay for shipping, but I would have to pay for someone to bring it to my house anyway. So there are these difficulties in getting even local produce onto the shelves in our populations, oftentimes because things like grain go through these large intermediaries. They're sold on the futures market. They're aggregated from all over the country. So just the complexity of our supply chain also makes it brittle to these kinds of disruptions. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Episode producer Brady Heberlin is in conversation with network scientist Sam Scarpino about how to take the measure of a pandemic and why supply chains for things like toilet paper are affected. We also see other things like just our changing behavior. Uh, I, I think this is true, but I should tell you that I actually haven't done a lot of research to verify it. But what I'm being told about why we have such a shortage of toilet paper is that a lot of us use the toilet as often or more at work than we do at home. And the kinds of industrial toilet paper that the office buildings buy is hard to repackage and sell for home use. And so we've shifted our behavior and the supply chain is lagging, catching up in terms of the kinds of toilet paper. And you can imagine that being played out in all different kinds of settings. And so it it is the case that these complexities in the supply chain, I think a lack of realism around where they're going to get disrupted has put us in this very uh, difficult situation with respect to, you know, we, we hear about farmers that are slaughtering chickens because they can't sell them. And then, of course, there are 10,000 people that line up to get food. In San, in San Antonio, Texas. And so there's obviously a massive disconnect between between supply and demand. Uh, and, and we're going to have to figure out how to close that quickly. But then also, you know, as you were kind of discussing earlier, what do we need to be doing going forward to prevent as much of this as possible from, from happening again? Yeah, thank you for that. I think this brings me to my last question, which is just about the possibility of future pandemics, as if one isn't enough. We know that with changes in climate, warming across the world, with the opening up of potentially new tropical and subtropical zones as the temperature you know, moves moves warmer for, further north, um, that this could very well not be the first pandemic that we see in our lifetime, or not be, not be the only pandemic that we see in our lifetime. As somebody who's studying these things, do you have a sense of what factors are making pandemics maybe more likely right now, or what we should what we need to look forward to um, as we as we enter into this era of, of climate change? We know that our populations have been growing exponentially. We know that the proportion of people living in dense urban areas is going up. We know that we're seeing increasing rates of agricultural intensification, increasing rates of contact between humans, intense agricultural practices, 
and wildlife populations. All of those are contributors to spillover and then spread of, of infectious diseases. We know through climate change that we're seeing the disruption of natural ecosystem processes, which often brings animals or plants in contact with each other that wouldn't normally be in contact with each other, or it increases the contact rate between wildlife populations such that they can maintain different kinds of diseases that, that they perhaps couldn't before. If we and when we start to have disruptions along the coasts, that's going to further densify our populations as people have to move into or out of less habitable regions into uh, more suitable regions. So all of these things are contributing to increased chances of, of pandemic. So I think we should certainly be planning for this not to be the last uh, in our lifetime by, by any measure. Now, all that being said, uh, I think if we implement improved protection of individuals, especially in the most vulnerable populations in the United States and globally, fix the healthcare system, universal basic income, solve some of the supply chain issues, especially as it pertains to food waste. We do all of these things. We prepare ourselves for the next pandemic, but of course, we're going to reap huge benefits, even if there isn't a pandemic. So I think in this situation, we're not talking about a trade-off between, okay, we're going to have to incur this huge cost to prepare for the next pandemic. I actually think that we will realize massive benefits, even if there isn't another pandemic. But when we almost certainly find ourselves facing the next COVID-19, we will be prepared. And instead of looking back and saying, why didn't we do it? We will have done it. We will have realized the societal and economic benefits from doing it. And we will not be in as dire a situation as we are now. That's our show. We'll close with I Needed It Yesterday off of the Nick Fraser album, Too Many Continents, featuring Chris Davis and Tony Malaby. Our thanks to Sam Scarpino for some much-needed clarity on the ways of COVID-19 and its network effects on our social systems. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Today's interview was produced by Brady Heberlin. Sean Milligan edited the conversation. Our executive producer is Cade Young. You're listening to WFHB, Bloomington, Indiana's community radio station. Thanks for listening.